You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. We're very pleased to welcome all of you to the United States Institute of Peace. My name is Lise Grande, and I am the president of USIP which was established by the U.S. Congress in 1984 as a nonpartisan public institution dedicated to helping prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad. It is a great, a distinct privilege for the Institute to welcome His Excellency, the Foreign Minister of Pakistan, Dr. Bilawal Bhutto Zadari. We've elevated. <laughs> Mr. Minister, please know that all of us here today and across America stand in solidarity with and are committed to supporting your government and the people of Pakistan as you address the terrible consequences of the unprecedented flooding and environmental catastrophe that has engulfed your country. For 75 years, the U.S. and Pakistan have had deep, meaningful bilateral relations. As we reinvigorate this partnership, we do so in the face of the challenges posed by global competition, by extremism, by restrictions on religious and ethnic minorities, curbs on civil society and the media, and by climate change. This is a partnership that matters profoundly, not only to our countries, but because it is an anchor of regional and global peace and security. In welcoming His Excellency, we are delighted to have with us Derek Cholet, the distinguished counselor at the United States Department of State. Counselor Cholet serves as the senior policy advisor to Secretary of State Blinken, having held numerous positions at the State Department, White House, and Department of Defense. Derek was recently in Pakistan leading a delegation to witness firsthand the unprecedented flooding which has affected the country. Mr. Counselor. Well, thank you so much uh, for that kind introduction. And it's really great to see everybody, see so many uh, colleagues and old friends and associates. Mr. Minister, I can say we haven't had many of these kinds of occasions recently in Washington, mainly because of the pandemic, where we can all come together. So it's really a powerful testament to our relationship and the success of your visit that USIP has brought us all here together and, and to hear from you. And I'll just say some very brief words at the top, because I don't want to... Uh, interrupt the main event here, which is to hear from you. Uh, we have had an intensive few weeks on the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. Um, from a congressional delegation that was there just about two weeks ago to the delegation uh, that I led to Samantha Power's visit, uh, to your very successful visit here in Washington over the last several days, the highlight of which was a very important meeting with Secretary Blinken just a few days ago. And of course, we are here to celebrate and commemorate the 75 years of our relationship between the United States and Pakistan, and we have gone through a lot together. There's no secret about that, and we've had a lot of ups and downs along the way, but I think, uh, Mr. Minister, you would agree with me that we have a new opportunity here at this moment in the midst of what is such a profound crisis for Pakistan. And that's something, of course, we are very focused on. I 
and the delegation uh, that I led a few weeks ago to Pakistan were able to see the damage of the floods firsthand. The scale and the damage is absolutely staggering. Thousands and thousands of miles of land that are underwater and that are going to stay underwater for many months to come. The focus we have is on immediate relief, but we have to also keep our eyes on the horizon of reconstruction and rehabilitation of Pakistan and the consequences that are going to be coming from this crisis, whether it's food insecurity, uh, numerous health crises, the infrastructure damage, the list just goes on and on of the needs that Pakistan is going to face in the weeks and months and, in fact, years to come. The United States has really tried to step up in response to this crisis in the immediate weeks uh, after the floods really captured all of our attention. We've released about $56 million, and I should note that that's new money, not repurposed money, new money for Pakistan uh, to help with the relief efforts. And for about two weeks straight, we had C-17 uh, U.S. Air Force aircraft from CENTCOM landing every day in Pakistan delivering relief supplies. And just a few days ago, uh, after uh, the Secretary of State's meeting with, with the foreign minister, we announced an additional $10 million in food security assistance for Pakistan, so bringing the grand total to about $66 million dollars in immediate relief. Now, we're leading the way, but we recognize that this is barely scratching the surface of what Pakistan's needs are going to be in the months to come. And as Secretary Blinken made very clear uh, Monday privately to the foreign minister, but more importantly publicly, uh, we have stood by our friend in need often in the past, and we are going to do so again, both in these immediate days of the crisis, but more importantly, in the months uh, to come. Uh, beyond the floods, we have a lot to keep uh, focused on in terms of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. Uh, there is a lot of experience in this room uh, on the subject. Uh, and our ambassador, Don Blum, a terrific ambassador, has been there about a couple months. He's going to actually be speaking to these issues as well in Islamabad tomorrow at an event he'll be hosting at our embassy to commemorate the 75th anniversary. But he's giving a speech that will be more than just your typical uh, thanks for coming address, it's going to be a real policy address about the state of the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. So I commend that uh, to everyone in this room to, to take a look at. Um, here's the opportunity, as, as I see it, for the first time really since the end of the Cold War, uh, this relationship between the United States and Pakistan is not defined by a hyphen. Uh, we are not focused on Pakistan proliferation, Indo-Pak, Af-Pak. Uh, we have a moment now where the U.S. relationship to Pakistan stands on its own, and it's not defined by these other issues. Now, I recognize that that can sometimes create some challenges because here in Washington, because of uh, the fact that it's not defined by those issues solely, there can sometimes be a sense of, of drift and the idea that our attention can focus elsewhere. But I can say uh, from the Biden administration perspective, we intend to be very focused on the future of our relationship with Pakistan across a range of issues, not just flood relief, but uh, in terms of how we can build stronger government-to-government -government relations and stronger relations between our economies and our societies. 
so in addition to the continued U.S. support for Pakistan's flood relief, we are focused on several key pillars of our engagement, whether that's strengthening our trade and investment, working together to build our ties across global health. We launched our first health security dialogue a few months ago to double down on our people-to-people -people relationships, including our educational exchanges, our cultural exchanges, scholarships, and of course to work together on issues like climate change. And that's front and center, again, because of the floods to help Pakistan with uh, addressing uh, a changing climate and to mitigate its impacts. Now, I don't think any of us should pretend, and those of you with deep experience in this relationship know that any of this, we should not think any of this is going to be easy or that we're not going to have disagreements along the way. But I believe that we have established a foundation in this relationship that we can both be proud of and that can translate into tangible benefits for the American people and the Pakistani people. The 75th anniversary of our relationship is an opportunity for us to reflect back on the past and all that we have achieved together and the journey that we've traveled. It's also an opportunity for us to imagine the future and what we can achieve together. We should be clear-eyed about the challenges we face, but we should be open and optimistic and pragmatic about the opportunities to come. So I want to thank the foreign minister and his entire team and the terrific ambassador here in Washington for all of their hard work to make uh, this visit such a success. I want to thank you for your leadership. Thank you for being here today. And we look forward to not just the conversation over the next hour, but all the work we're going to be doing in the months ahead. Thank you very much. We're very pleased to introduce Ambassador Dan Feldman, who was the former Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, and more recently, the Chief of Staff and Counselor of Climate Envoy Secretary John Kerry. Senator Ambassador Feldman will be joining His Excellency in just a moment. <laughs> I'm just elevating everybody today. <laughs> We're going to be having a moderated conversation, and we invite colleagues who are sitting at the tables to use the cards and the pens that are at the center of your table in case you have a question that you would like to pose for His Excellency. And with that, we have the distinct privilege and honor to welcome to the podium His Excellency, the Foreign Minister to Pakistan. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for having me back at USIP. Um, I believe this is now maybe my sixth time here, but the first uh, as the foreign minister of Pakistan. And I want to start by complimenting the work that you do here at USIP. It is so refreshing in the current political environment everywhere to see an organization ded dedicated to true uh, bipartisan work, uh, and well, maybe nonpartisan work, and uh, a focus uh, to international relations. I have been in um, America now for coming up to two weeks. Last Sunday I got into uh, DC, and the Sunday before that uh, I got into New York. And I have to say that we've had an incredibly productive visit. Before I became foreign minister, I was told uh, that there wasn't much time, uh, that uh, there wasn't much time or space or interest in Pakistan anymore in Washington. And I can say without, beyond 
uh, sort of a reasonable doubt. Uh, the activities we've had over the last many weeks, the interest that I see in this room today, the engagements that we've had uh, with senators, with congressmen, um, at the State Department, that is no longer the case. And I think that's fantastic news, both for the United States and for Pakistan. Um, the main reason that I actually am here before you is that the ground realities in Pakistan have now fundamentally changed from when I started my initial engagements with the US government. We were already working on uh, dehyphenating our relationship. We were already working on uh, looking at ways and means to expand our bilateral relationship beyond the lens of Afghanistan, looking at opportunities to increase economic cooperation between our two countries, enhance trade relations between our two countries uh, in the areas of tech, agriculture, health, uh, energy. But over the last few months, Pakistan has been hit with what can only be described as a climate catastrophe of apocalyptic biblical proportions. We're a country that is used to dealing with monsoons, a country that is used to dealing with floods. We're not equipped to deal with a third of the landmass of our country being submerged underwater, floods that descended from the skies. We're not equipped, as I imagine most countries are not equipped, to deal with one-seventh of their population becoming climate refugees overnight. We, one-seventh of the population of Pakistan is 33 million people. That is larger than the population of New York State. That is larger than the population of New Zealand or Canada or Sri Lanka. That's 95% the population of Canada. I don't think Canada would be able to deal if 95% of the population of Canada, uh, heaven forbid, were to suffer from a tragedy of this scale. This climate catastrophe has already cost 1,600 lives, a third of which are children. Of the 33 million people affected, 16 million are children. Of those 33 million people, 600,000 are pregnant women waiting to give birth under the open sky. And unfortunately, the bad news doesn't end there. The World Health Organization has already warned that Pakistan uh, is bracing itself for a second catastrophe, a health catastrophe, waterborne diseases spreading at epidemic rates. We've warned of the challenges to our food security because with four million acres of standing crop destroyed already, uh, we were in a difficult space as far as food security is concerned in general, but that is one difficult uh, blow to deal with.
above and beyond that. I'm sure those who've been closely watching Pakistan are aware. We had worked ever since the new coalition government came into power to avert an economic disaster in Pakistan. As a result of the overall economic climate, but more particularly some of the decisions uh, the country took for themselves, we were in an incredibly dangerous economic space. Uh, and luckily, we managed to demonstrate that we're willing to take the tough economic decisions. We're able to enter into an agreement with the IMF and averted uh, the potential economic crisis. But of course, with the floodwaters, not only um, are all the issues that I raised before you a point of concern, but all those estimates, all those figures that this current tranche of the IMF uh, is based upon have now also washed away with the floods. This is a compounding tragedy of the likes we've never seen before and has the potential to become a humanitarian disaster from, for the history books. Now, we have a plan. We too aspire to create an opportunity after this crisis. We too aspire to build back better in a greener, more climate-resilient manner. And that would give us the opportunity to put Pakistan, the people affected, back on their feet, invest heavily in infrastructure, irrigation infrastructure, agriculture infrastructure, communication infrastructure, energy, green energy infrastructure. And rather than doing it cheaply and messily, and more important, dirtily, we'd like to do it uh, in a green, climate-resilient way. Obviously, that's more expensive. And we have to come up with the finances in an international environment that we know is economically difficult for everyone. Everyone has gone through the COVID pandemic. Everyone is feeling the pinch at the pump and elsewhere after uh, the events between Russia and Ukraine. And there, everyone has their own devastation. Everyone has their own catastrophe. But I believe that with some novel ideas, with some engaging our international partners, engaging international financial institutions, uh, with concept, concepts such as uh, debt swaps as suggested by Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the uh, United Nations, by engaging the private sector, both domestically and internationally. We can find a way to have a big enough a canvas to address all the challenges that we have uh, coming up in front of us, uh, and to do so in a way that's not only good for the people of Pakistan who've been devastated by this tragedy, but that would be good business and provide good opportunities uh, for, to both our private sector, the international private sector, and give us an opportunity to cooperate with our international partners. 
For example, uh, when I was speaking with Secretary of State at the State Department the other day, the Secretary referred to uh, how Pakistan and the United States partnered to build Darbela Dam and Mangla Dam in Pakistan. Now that was the last time we've worked together on such large-scale infrastructure projects uh, with the United States. And that was 1965 to 1970s Green Revolution. And I think perhaps it's time for another Green Revolution where we can work with our international partners who already have a robust agenda on climate, both domestically and internationally, and rise to the challenges and meet them head on. And I have no doubt in the resilience of the people of Pakistan, who've demonstrated time and time again how resilient we are. And perhaps this crisis would provide us with the opportunity to be the pilot case, the test case going forward. Because today this is Pakistan. Tomorrow it can be anybody else. We contribute a negligible 0.8% to the global carbon footprint. But we are amongst the 10 most climate, number eight, most climate stressed country on the planet. And we're not the only ones. All our fellow countries also contribute negligibly to the global carbon footprint. They all also don't have the fiscal space to adapt, to mitigate, to build the infrastructure necessary to deal uh, with the climate challenges that we all to face. And we discovered through this process, after drowning in the floods, that there isn't this green climate fund with $100 billion a year. That money's not available. <laughs> Turns out international financial institutions aren't equipped to deal with a 100-kilometer lake that forms in the middle of your country that can be seen from space. There's no vehicle, there's no mechanism for us to plug in. There's no script for us to put into place. So while we meet this challenge for us and find the solutions for ourselves, we hope as a result of this process, we can create the vehicles, we can create the frameworks, more importantly, we can create the precedent of what needs to be done to meet these challenges. I'm incredibly grateful to our friends in the United States who stepped up, stepped up right away, not only in the form of your uh, assistance that you have announced already, but also uh, Derek came and visited us in Pakistan during the floods. Samantha Powers, the head of USAID, was there to see firsthand uh, the devastation with her own eyes. Your congressional delegation with, uh, I think it's the Pakistani caucus headed by uh, Ms. Jackson, um, they visited as well. So all of Pakistan is witnessing, and I believe the entire world is witnessing, that uh, the people of America and the governor of America are standing in solidarity with the people of Pakistan in this difficult time. And now we look forward to partnering with you as we build back better and greener. Thank you so much. I want to give a chance for us to be interrogated by. Well, 
Thank you very much, Mr. Minister. Um, it's, um, it's great to have you here. I think it's uh, a remarkable testament to you and to the U.S. Institute of Peace that this is indeed your sixth visit here, or, or, or at least uh, a multiple, some, some multiple visits. Um, and, uh, and it says quite a bit about your engagement uh, with the U.S. policy community over many years and the really critical role that, that the U.S. Institute of Peace um, has played and continues to play, particularly uh, on, on Pakistan issues. So, so thanks for hosting us. Um, you may not know everyone in the audience, but this is effectively the extended Pakistan family uh, in Washington. It's uh, comprised of um, many former, current U.S. government policymakers who have helped to shape and implement policy towards Pakistan through the very highs to the very lows and um, many places in between over several decades now, and the many stakeholders that uh, we've all relied upon um, for uh, knowledge and insights uh, and, and information. So this is, um, this is a particularly informed, informed group, and um, I want to ask um, a number of questions, starting with, uh, we'll talk about the bilateral relationship with the U.S. and some domestic issues and some regional issues. Um, I think I already have enough questions to last us through dinner, uh, but, um, but I also strongly encourage um, questions from the audience and in the roughly 40 minutes that we have, um, we'll try to get through as, um, as, as many as possible. Um, I guess I wanted to start, obviously, with, um, with the most obvious, which is your, your visit to Washington. Uh, you said you've had, had very productive, a very productive visit, but I'd love for you to give a little bit more of a sense of what some of those um, governmental meetings are like, and in particular, what, what you're really seeking at this point. What is your vision um, of a U.S.-Pakistan bilateral relationship so that it can withstand the, um, the shocks and the shifting geostrategic priorities um, and so that we don't have this, um, uh, the vast fluctuations in the way that we've had uh, to date and that we embark on a, on a more stable and sustainable relationship. Um, so as far as uh, our visit is, is concerned, I think uh, it was originally, uh, I mean, it's, it's been scheduled for some time and it was really originally uh, planned as an initial step and in building upon the engagements that we've had uh, so far. But obviously, following uh, the floods back home, both my visit to the um, uh, to the UN in New York and here in Washington have been incredibly uh, colored by that. And in that context, it's extremely productive and effective because I've had the opportunity to communicate the devastation going uh, that's happening back home in a way that you don't, um, you just don't know, uh, having read the papers or seen what's being shown on social media. Uh, and I've had a fantastic response within that context. As far as our U.S., uh, the relationship with the U.S. is concerned, I think um, many foreign ministers over the history of Pakistan have dedicated their careers to dehyphenating our relationship. So I'm very pleased to report that within a few months of being in office, it just so happens we've reached that point uh, where apparently we're officially dehyphenated and no longer AFPAC or Indo-PAC or anything else PAC, or just US PAC. And I think that's exactly the space we want to be, be in if we want to develop a deep, meaningful relationship that is multifaceted, um, that isn't colored by any one event. And that's how uh, we will see this 
relationship solidify and strengthen and be able to withstand fluctuations in, in geopolitics or, I mean, as far as disagreements are concerned, or I think that's sort of the beauty of strong uh, partnerships and strong relationships is that uh, you can disagree and get along. You can uh, engage and either find a middle path or even just agree to disagree. Uh, but it won't, ex it won't affect the overall standing of your relationship. Uh, for us to build back to that point, I think it's gonna take time, it's gonna take effort uh, on both sides. I think we're gonna definitely have incidents and issues that is gonna uh, test us, uh, but it is in the interest of both our countries and both our peoples that we uh, sustain and maintain and solidify this relationship that is now 75 years old. Um, we have, as, 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 as Derek said, uh, for too long after the Cold War, it's been within that context of Afghanistan. And it's about time we turn the page. Good. Well, con congratulations on starting off on, on, on that foot. I know that obviously this visit has been primarily through the prism of the, of the floods. And you've spoken about this very poignantly, including just now in terms of the 100-mile the lake that you can now see from space. Um, I was uh, at the State Department for the 2010 floods. Uh, I think we were one of the first uh, visitors with Secretary, then Senator Kerry, uh, who came over in, in summer of 2010. And I was with him and surveying at that point from the air um, and then working for many years on, on disaster relief at that point. What, what lessons were learned or not learned from, from 2010 that are uh, resurfacing at this point? Um, uh, obviously, including my most recent position working on, on climate issues, we all have to do much more on adaptation and resilience issues. But, um, but are there things that Pakistan should have been doing uh, over the last decade? Um, and what can we try to ensure we build together uh, to address the, the, the next crisis? Sure. So after the 2010 and 2011 floods, we actually did, not only with the, the US, but with the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank uh, invested in infrastructure that hadn't been invested for quite some time. I don't know whether we were as far along on sort of green and, and um, or how resilient we had to be, but that was supposed to be a once in a hundred year uh, climate catastrophe. And um, based on that, we made improvements uh, either with loans or on our own to our uh, infrastructure. And for example, there was there's a bridge in Swat in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa that was knocked down uh, by the last floods, which were, up until this point, uh, the most devastating floods we'd seen. Those now pale in comparison to the scale of this disaster. But it had knocked down a bridge, and we built it back 15 feet higher than uh, the high point of the last time uh, those flooding took place. In my hometown town of um, Sindh, in Kambal-Shudatkot, we have, uh, which is right next to my sort of uh, constituency of Larkana, um, uh, on the border with Balochistan, a flood protection bund. It's actually called FB bund. It's like an embankment that protects against the flood. Uh, and that, too, had been damaged in the last uh, flooding, so it was built back stronger, much higher compared to the last time and it broke. And that's not sort of like it wasn't just sort of us doing cheap um, 
Pakistani fixing of these things. We had international organizations and the World Bank and UN, and so many involved in, 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 in helping us. But I don't think their plans or our plans had predicted um, devastation of this scale. Uh, and this time around, we'll have to do it in a manner uh, that can withstand extreme shocks. It's not only that these floods that we're experiencing, most of the time we're concerned about extreme heat and drought and that effect on our agriculture, on our irrigation. Obviously, on the other side, we have uh, these extreme floods. So we're going to have to update our, not only our irrigation infrastructure, but our agriculture infrastructure as well. And I believe the United States has uh, the technology for us to prepare our farmers uh, for these fluctuating weather extremes. And, and what specifically are you seeking from the international community at this point? How does it so, color as well what you'll go into COP27 for? You've made a yeah. comment about the Green Climate Fund and elsewhere, but... The thing that's handicapping me right now is until the waters fully recede, we can't get our final damage need assessment done. And that's going to tell us exactly the scale uh, of the damage caused so that we can use that number or that, uh, that information to build. Uh, our reconstruction, our rehabilitation phase uh, going forward. At the moment, the water is still there and the damage needs assessment is still being done. So, uh, so for now, we've launched our UN flash appeals, which are for immediate assistance for the relief and rescue. And as far as the reconstruction and rehabilitation efforts, uh, within the, the coming month, we should get the initial DNA uh, back to us. And then with that, a context will be able to go uh, to Paris, where we're planning to go in November with the UN Secretary General and uh, President Macron of France to, uh, to, to, to talk about reconstruction and rehabilitation and raise the funds for, uh, for, for that. And beyond reconstruction and rehabilitation on fundamental matters of climate policy to ensure that you and countries like you that bear a disproportionate share of uh, of the climate impact and adaptation. What is a, a, a pragmatic, viable path forward with the international community? So that's community? the scary thing. So we, uh, Pakistan, the Pakistan People's Party has long advocated for uh, the environment to be part of our political agenda. In fact, in 2007, when my mother went back to Pakistan, her 2007 manifesto of the People's Party was the first to have environment on the agenda. And while um, we thought uh, that, you know, obviously no one is, necessarily meeting all the objectives uh, in the way and manner that one should, uh, or that things weren't all great on that front. Um, we were investing in green energy. We were already having conversations on solar and on wind and starting projects in that framework. And that was sort of the direction that our climate our strategy was taking. And within, Pakistan, within the Pakistani context, we also have all this, uh, the import of hydrocarbons that we do, and we just want to move away from that. It's after these floods that we kind of realize that, wait a second, we only produce 0.8% of the carbon footprint. So even if tomorrow I switch to all green, which we still will, I'm not going to be able to stop the flooding. And I'm not going to be able to protect my people from the next floods. So while we will still focus on uh, green energy, we have to adopt uh, adaptation mechanisms. We have to learn to adapt to these extreme 
and where the shifts, and I'm not an expert, but um, those, that's where if we have sort of funds, that's where the majority of the funds will have to go. Uh, because while we keep transitioning to green energy, I don't think our transition's going to halt what's happening. So given the tumultuous time in, in Pakistan, uh, due in part to the floods, but also um, a period of political instability with upcoming elections, with the change of military leadership on the horizon, with hard economic decisions, as well as the, the, the flood relief, it, it has a political consensus developed with regard to the need for reforms? Um, for what, for climate? No, across the board, about what, what it would take uh, to ensure that there's broader political stability domestically. And, and I'd say uh, with the continuing popularity of, of Imran Khan as well, is there, what, what do you see as the, as the future of civilian governance in Pakistan? So as far as our reforms are concerned, I think throughout the history of Pakistan, we've had this question of instability, uncertainty, a lack of continuity uh, that has made our development path incredibly difficult. Uh, but of what the, the sort of achievement uh, of my mother, Sheet Mothma Benazir Bhutto, and former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was to break that cycle. And what they did was, uh, is that they agreed that even though we don't agree politically, democracy only works if everybody agrees that it's going to work. And we're going to respect each other's mandates. We're going to work within the constitutional system. There's not going to be political victimizations or undermining of the freedom of the press. Uh, and not only was that a promise, that promise was delivered on. After her assassination, we, for the first time in 30 years, restored the 1973 Federal Democratic Constitution of Pakistan. We devolved power away from individuals like our president to the parliament at the center, and more importantly, uh, to the provinces or the states in your terminology that make up Pakistan. And we saw 10 years of comparative political stability, never before seen in the history of Pakistan. We saw the first civilian government complete its term and transfer power peacefully and constitutionally to the next civilian government who also completed their term. Unfortunately, the next guy we transitioned to, who you call popular, um, didn't like that. And he has a politics of, um, and it's sort of played out over the last four years before our eyes, of um, either it's me or it's nobody else. And the rules apply to everyone, but they don't apply to me. And as we've seen here in the United States, a 200-year-old democracy, the sort of beacon uh, for all democracies all over the world, that all it takes is one man to decide that the rules don't apply to me, the laws don't apply to me, and unfortunately, we've seen even a democracy as strong and vibrant as the United States can falter. And unfortunately, the events of January 6th 
um, should have been a warning for Democrats all over the world. Unfortunately, Mr. Khan took inspiration from the events of January 6th and has been aping uh, some of what's happening in your own politics. And while maybe a 200-year-old American democracy can survive this, the fragile democracy in Pakistan is facing challenges like never before in that context. Uh, but our opposition has had the last four or five months to just campaign while we uh, have been focused on first the economic crisis, averting the potential default that he created, uh, and now the floods. I will relish the opportunity to face him in a free and fair election, to campaign and speak to the people of Pakistan, and break this myth that you repeated in front of me. <laughs> I would note that there's a certain popularity of Donald Trump as well, but that Absolutely. doesn't necessarily mean that we... <laughs> You're right. Um, well, you, you, you just referenced some of the democracy initiatives and distinguishing, um, distinguishing aspects of a, of, a, of a free and fair democracy. And, uh, and, and that's obviously been part of, kind of a core part of your, of your party's platform for, for, for many years. And yet... Um, on something like freedom of journalists, which you which you just referenced, the the current government has shut down uh, media channels, is is looking to uh, to take aim at VPNs, and in fact, it's not just a national issue, but in but in Sindh as well. Over the last 15 years, journalists are three times more likely to face anti-terror cases than than other provinces in Pakistan. So, how how do you reconcile? Pakistan's commitment to democracy with, with what's actually transpiring on the ground. Thank you. So that progress that I mentioned that we achieved for those 10 years, that took our entire existence to build the consensus, to build the normative framework, to strengthen the institutions, to end the practice of press censorship, to expand our rights, whether they're media rights, whether they're constitutional rights, whether they're human rights. And, you know, they say it takes a lifetime to build something. It just takes a moment to tear it down. When Mr. Khan came in, he reversed all the progress we made at an mm, exponential rate. He, changed, he introduced, tried to introduce legislation where any criticism of our armed forces and institution would result in legal consequences. He imposed a very restrictive uh, media policy that resulted in our channels being shut for the first time. Uh, journalists came within the scope of anti-terrorism laws uh, in a way that they've never done before. And now we've been in power for four months. And it's not just a Pakistan People's Party government. It's an eight-party coalition government. And it's going to take us a long time to get back to the place we were before. The difference is that whether it's the Pakistan People's Party or even the Muslim League Nawaz, we resist against or try and dampen the worst characteristics of anti-democratic forces within our country. Mr. Khan acted as a catalyst 
And at every point in time, so you're not anti-democratic enough, you're not arresting people enough, you're not locking up enough our opponents, and turbocharged Pakistan's journey uh, with authoritarianism in a way that we've never seen any civilian politician in the history of Pakistan do. That is the danger that he represents. Because in the past, it's very easy to see when a dictator takes over and he's sitting and controlling the country. It's different when a Democrat, a civilian, empowered by rights, laws, institutions, and norms, works to undermine those very same principles. You're literally cutting the legs of your own chair, if it were, by doing that. I, I, I don't think you could find an American now that doesn't recognize more the fragility of, of democracy. And, uh, and we certainly are working through some of our own issues right now and rebuilding core institutions. But I do think that the um, that there are specific indicators that, that the people look for from, from government on what stands they are taking there. So whether it's on media freedoms and what the distinction is from the prior government, but I would also ask on issues of religious minorities, uh, are there specific steps that the, that the government is committed to taking uh, to hold attackers accountable? On women's rights issues, are there tangible steps that you think the, the government is Every willing to take? Every single right in, your, in the Constitution of Pakistan be it labor rights, be it women's rights, be it minority rights and the expansion of minority rights, every single one has been delivered by the Pakistan People's Party. Every single one. Every other party in power has either reversed our rights, maintained the status quo, but no, and well, including transgender rights. No one has expanded uh, on that right base. Even today, we are just as committed to that but in the four months we've been in power, we have not legislated um, in a sort of more legislation, be it on women's rights or on minority rights. But as far as social protection programs and women's empowerments are concerned, particularly the Pakistan People's Party has led the way on that, uh, with the Benazir Income Support Program being the federal uh, poverty alleviation program, which is specifically linked to women. It's a crash transfer program that is now praised uh, all over the world by all international financial institutions. It's even being copied in Egypt and other countries. And on the provincial level in Sindh, we have a, the People's Poverty Reduction Program that after from 2009 up until now has been functioning. It has uh, one million rural women uh, benefiting uh, from the program, which is not a cash transfer. It's an interest-free loan that we give women to start their own businesses. And we're very proud to say that we've created uh, one million women entrepreneurs as a result of this program. They, uh, and I, I'd like to just mention here that the return rate on these loans, which are minuscule loans compared to loans that commercial banks and others give, is 97%. So that just goes to show that Women pay back their loans, their commitments, and the success of the program. So I believe economically, politically, and socially, whether you want to empower women, whether you want to empower minorities, we've always led the way and we'll continue to lead the way. 
Let's, let's um, continue on the economic theme for, for just a bit. Uh, many of us in the room have worked in the past on IMF plans for Pakistan, and we're now in, in yet another one. What is, what's your prognosis for, for the economy? And, and um, for those that don't want to necessarily bail out Pakistan again at this point, what's, um, what's your response for how the world should view Pakistan's economic future? Okay, so as far as our economy is concerned, we definitely have fundamental problems. Um, for example, we have to expand our um, sort of our tax base, our tax revenue. The elites in our country and across the world just don't like paying tax, and they end up having outsized political power, and that makes things difficult. Um, so there's a whole host of like fundamental reforms uh, that one has to do. As far as the latest IMF uh, program is concerned, I have to emphasize how. I, and I I'm going to have to take my out of the foreign ministry sort of hat off for a second in case I get us into trouble. But uh, how incredibly predatory and unfair this program has been. Because this was agreed to by Mr. Imran Khan in 2019, I believe. And we've stuck with this program, even though I believe it lost all its value because we saw this was a pre-COVID program, a pre-fall of Kabul program, a pre-Ukraine program, but it was that same framework that they kept insisting again and again that despite this, you're gonna continue with that. Despite this, you're gonna continue with that. And I think that wasn't reflective of the ground realities in Pakistan. It made it difficult for Mr. Khan to deliver on this anyway. Uh, and. But anyway, we, the way the world works is that you have to uh, get the backing of the IMF before other countries are willing to engage with your economy. So uh, we had to do that. Then Mr. The, the most dangerous thing he did was, okay, you entered into an IMF program. Fine, I agree with you. It may have been unfair. But when he saw that his political power was threatened, he literally started playing Russian roulette with our foreign policy and with our domestic economics. He violated his own program, emptied our coffers for an unfunded subsidy, uh, which pushed us to the precipice of default. This is while Sri Lanka was happening right next door. It was at, during the same time frame, uh, And we came into power um, even though some people weren't actually interested in staying in power for very long and they wanted to have early elections, what happened was we had to avert a default. We had to engage with the same IMF under the same uh, framework. We did that, got through the proposition. As far as countries not willing to bail out Pakistan anymore, don't if you don't want to. I mean, I'm not gonna be your, your, your moral guide uh, I will be talking about how awful it is because I feel, as I mentioned in our speech, in my speech, that if we produce 0.8% of carbon emissions, and at the moment the economic challenges that we are facing are a devastation of a climate catastrophe, like is directly the result of the industrialization of the developed world, I actually kind of see climate change as a fancy word to say the price that everyone is paying for a certain country is getting rich. Um, so it would not only be amoral for those countries to say now that, oh, you can't stick to our IMF agreement because you've been hit by these biblical floods, but it's all right, you, you know, you've, you've had too many IMF programs before, so now drown. That would be 
that sort of amoral, inhuman. Um, that would be my response to that. So putting aside the IMF piece of this, um, this is a question from the audience, but could have been a talking point in my briefing paper I had a decade ago, which is, what are the specific steps that the government's taking to attract foreign investment, given that the ease of doing business uh, has been such a challenge in Pakistan? So the ease of doing business has been an immense challenge in Pakistan. Uh, just us trying to address ease of doing business in one province for one city of, of, of Karachi drastically impacted the overall ease of brewing business rating of my country overall. So I feel like if we concentrate on that in all provinces and everywhere, that would uh, be a positive step. Another thing that I believe can facilitate business and investment in Pakistan uh, is something that has been successful for us again in the province uh, of Sindh, which is the public-private partnership model, uh, where we because we have issues with financing and things, we joined with the private sector, and as a result, we built the largest bridge across the Indus uh, in public-private partnership. Uh, we've built road infrastructure in public-private partnership. Uh, we've built, okay, now it's not popular, uh, but energy, coal, uh, production from public-private partnership, and there's no reason why we now can't, going forward, uh, invest in green energy through public-private partnership. Uh, and, uh, and our efforts in this context um, has been uh, noted by uh, The Economist magazine that ranked uh, since public-private partnerships as the sixth or fifth best in the region. So not Pakistan versus India, but Sindh versus India uh, we beat them. And I think that this is a, a, a vehicle, this is a, a mechanism that we've, uh, we've tried, we've delivered on, and it can be a good model for us to work uh, with our domestic uh, private sector, international private sector, even our international uh, friends in um, financing uh, projects. So, so the IMF has um, stated that a third of Pakistan's debt is owed to China. So shouldn't China be the first to provide debt relief to Pakistan before other creditors and IFEs? And if not, why not? Uh, I think there's a presumption here that there's a not, and that's just not true. Uh, but also, I really hope that um, if this doesn't become a geo, we don't become a geopolitical football uh, between the two countries in this context. Uh, my conversations uh, with China um, will take place and they'll be based upon um, sort of our own conversations. I mean, I'm, I'm, I can share with you uh, for now that up until this point, China has never ever disappointed Pakistan. And there's no reason for us to expect that they will not do so now. In fact, as far as aid is concerned, they've um, uh, been uh, supportive for our flash appeal like other countries have. But as far as debt relief is concerned, I mean, one of when we first came into power and we were facing the economic collapse and the uh, uh, potential of default, the first country to provide us debt relief was China. But um, whether they do or they don't, that's their decision, and I hope that it's not linked to your decision only because that would mean we're no longer we're still hyphenated <laughs> with somebody else, and and um, there's no reason for us to treat everything as part 
of this of geopolitical tensions and conflict right now we have an issue that we will be unable to tackle in fact i'd like to know now if derek could tell me that um <laughs> because if the us and china can work together on climate then it's great we may be able to survive as the human race on this planet but if we can't or if you guys can't then maybe you let us know because then, like, I'd like to enjoy the last few years that we have left doing something <laughs> less intense. I mean, this, it's, it is incomprehensible for me that we're in 2022. And I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm very, I'm the youngest foreign minister that Pakistan has seen, but I remember, like, Al Gore, and now we're at Greta, and everybody's warning us about uh, the dangers of climate change. We're experiencing them right now. Uh, at home, and you'd think that we, as the human race, would have decided that this is an existential threat, and if the Earth survives, we can fight over it afterwards. But for now, let's pause our conflicts uh, and try and deal with uh, this catastrophe. Well, we've we've, we've uh, certainly been seeking those those channels and 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 vehicles, and we'll see what we can continue to do as as both bilaterally and multilaterally on climate change. But obviously. There are a range of other issues that uh, mm -hmm. uh, that the U.S. and 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 the international community are concerned about with regard with regard to China. So one one issue certainly in the U.S. you find very very few areas of bipartisan consensus. One of them has been on the condemnation of China for its treatment of uh, Uyghurs in the Xinjiang region. Pakistan has so far not commented on that. Would you? Uh, no. <laughs> and uh, no. Well. I've said this time and time again, I think productive conversations between friends don't happen through the media or through public statements, but, but do through uh, engagements, just as if I'd had concerns with the United States over the Muslim ban or any other policy. I don't think you would see my statement uh, publicly. I'd raise that with you privately. Going back to your point about climate, about you know there being other issues uh, that of concern other than climate, um, I used to think that. I now disagree. There's one issue. It's climate. Overnight, overnight, everybody you know can be affected. Overnight, your entire home state could be affected. There is no more important agenda. Uh, and I hope that there's the consensus builds over this. I was never, ever an extremist. I may have been sort of in the front within the Pakistani context. But as I said earlier, we'd pitch as far as green and wind and we'll do it at our own pace. The urgency of now is what I'd like to communicate to anybody I can. I did not, we were expecting rains. We were ex expecting some flooding. We did not expect our lives to be turned upside down. Um, there's, you, you, sort of my image of natural disasters before this was that sort of flood comes, a flood goes, an earthquake happened, an earthquake's over, you get into the relief and rebuilding. If this is the new reality, we have no time for any other concern. This should be everybody's concern from developing countries to developed countries. And because uh, the United States and China are the biggest countries on the planet. Only your cooperation can solve this issue. If while we're trying to address this issue, 
we're having geopolitical tensions, then it's just like gridlock happens in Washington. There's going to be gridlock on the international uh, scale, and the consequence of that will be felt by all of us. I, I certainly completely concur that we have to find ways to speak with each other on these existential concerns, and I think that you've, or this existential concern, and I think you've, you've addressed that very eloquently, but it doesn't mean that there won't be other diplomatic issues that come up. And so if, for instance, again, to your point that uh, Pakistan has not disagreed with, with the stances China has, has taken. Were China to seek to unify, um, uh, reunify Taiwan by military force, what would Pakistan's diplomatic posture I don't be? think China has shown they want to do anything by military force, uh, particularly compared to other countries who quite happily deploy military force quite quickly. Uh, but our uh, stated policy history, historically and going forward uh, will be in support of the one China policy, and I believe uh, that most countries um, support the one China policy. Um, let me, I think we just have a few more minutes, but let me conclude with a, just a, um, one or two questions uh, on, on the other regional uh, neighbor on, on, on India. Is there an opportunity at this point um, to, um, uh, to start some uh, sort of channel there as well? We've heard proposals of reviving stalled, tra stalled trade, um, you know, is there, does, does, do the floods present some sort of opportunity to move uh, the India-Pakistan relationship? So as far as the India-Pakistan relationship, to give you some context, um, in 2010, when the People's Party uh, uh, was leading the federal government, we unilaterally, see unilaterally, started trade with India for the first time since 1965. We grabbed on to what was the third rail of Pakistani politics, took the political risks, stuck our uh, sort of political necks on the line, dealt with the crazies, t protests, and threats of being declared traitors, etc., because we knew there was a rational, reasonable party who would most probably reciprocate to such an action. Despite the floods and devastation going on in Pakistan today, I don't believe we have the same neighbor next door who would rationally reasonably reciprocate. So in your opinion, what's the path to improving the relationship at this point? How do you lower ten tensions in so, Asia? So from the Pakistani context, even for parties such as myself, my, uh, my, my party who's advocated for most of our existence for better ties with India, and for business ties with India, for diplomatic ties with India, for peace with India, the biggest stumbling block um, has been the events of August 2019, where India unilaterally uh, violated UN resolutions, international law, uh, and tried to undermine the internationally disputed uh, status of Jammu and Kashmir. It then continued uh, in its attempts to convert the last bit of land under their control that had a Muslim majority into a, a minority in their own land. Those events made it shut the door on the political space for political parties like the People's Party or the Muslim League or others who were committed to engaging in uh, engaging positively with India. Uh, and if there was some sort of acknowledgement of 
how wrong that was. And I think particularly now uh, with the sort of international criticism of the violation of international law, UN resolutions and charters in the context of Ukraine, maybe we'll be able to emphasize that more to them. Um, if they could step back from that unilateral action or create some space around it, perhaps it would provide the window for us to be able to engage in a more meaningful way. Um, and, and lastly, just uh, a question on, on uh, counterterrorism. There re remains longstanding concerns about uh, Pakistan's support for various UN-designated terrorist groups and organizations such as Lashkar-e Taiba. Um, the view in, in Washington, I, I believe, is that Pakistan has, has taken some uh, important steps, but that those are still reversible. And so there's still questions about the, the status of um, terrorist leaders, and what is your, where do you stand on action against anti-India UN designated terrorist groups? Anti-India UN designated terrorist groups? I find it interesting that we're only interested in anti-India UN terrorist groups. Uh, there are a lot of terrorist groups uh, conducting themselves in and around Afghanistan, and I equally oppose them all, whether it is uh, the terrorist group you mentioned, whether it is Tariq Taliban, Pakistan, which is a terrorist group of our concern, whether it's ETIM, which is a terrorist group of China's concern, whether it's Al-Qaeda, whether it's anybody else. Uh, as far as Pakistan's action, um, we don't, I don't see our commitment or our need to take on this menace um, as a result of something that India wants, the international community wants. This is a question of our own survival. We lost 80,000 civilians in this conflict. And while everybody else has their own performance reports on tackling extremism uh, inside and outside the region, we within Pakistan managed to launch the North Waziristan operation, the South Waziristan operation, break the backs of these terrorist organizations so that they could no longer function in the way that they were in the past, where every other day was a terrorist attack when uh, um, we saw bloodbaths in our major cities to a, a moment or a sort of space of relative to come where investment has been able to come in. Uh, and we'd like to sort of continue on that path. To, to, as far as that specific organization is concerned, I believe that concrete action has not only been taken and recognized, but the progress we're seeing uh, as far as Pakistan's designation you know, on the FATF and joint action plans goes to show uh, that not only us, uh, but all our partners in the international community uh, are convinced and unanimously agree uh, that Pakistan has made significant progress on this front. And, we'll, and uh, we are hoping that that will mean we can move on to the whitelist. And I, noticed, I said that was my last question, but because you just raised the TTP, which now has asylum in, in Afghanistan, uh, could you give us a little bit of a sense of the, the logic of, um, of the talks with the TTP through the Taliban? Sure. Um, how I can lead to peace? And, and, and your sense right now uh, of Pakistan's relationship with the Taliban? Uh, so uh, within the Pakistani political context, I have always been pretty hawkish on the TTA or the TTP. Uh, but the reason that there was space for talks with the TTP, despite the fact that we completely debilitated them within our own context, was a, that everybody else talked to the TTA in, in Afghanistan. 
and B, uh, because there was after the fall of Kabul, there was jailbreaks over there. I don't know how many thousands of uh, sort of our biggest, baddest guys that were in their prison uh, got free. And as you, I mean, you use the term sanctuary, I suppose is correct. I mean, they, they were always there, but uh, now there's sort of a, a non. They're not threatened while there or something. Um, so that 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 obviously an issue of concern. So as a result of those talks, the 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 support or the strength behind the arguments for Pakistan to engage with the TTP was quite strong. They have engaged with them via the TTA in Afghanistan. Um, okay, I should say something positive first. Um, initially, the the as a result of uh, the talks, there was a, um, a, a ceasefire that was announced, and I think it's probably generally a good thing that uh, that's not happening. The only reason I'm skeptical, and I'm, I'm, I hope I'm proven wrong, is because every time we've talked in the past, um, it hasn't worked out. Hopefully I'm wrong this time around, and uh, the TTA can use their influence uh, to um, uh, ensure that the TTP uh, accepts the constitution of Pakistan, abides by the constitution of Pakistan, disarms and lives their lives as uh, normal, peaceful citizens, then I think we shouldn't have a problem. Um, how likely that is, is wait, wait, wait and see. Well, thank you very much. You. I think it's a, um, it, it's a demonstration of how far the relationship has come in dehyphenation that the India and Afghanistan questions were at the very end, <laughs> um, and uh, that we hardly even were able to touch on those. Uh, but we greatly appreciate your candor, uh, your transparency, your willingness uh, to engage and ultimately to build um, a stronger, more sustainable relationship between Pakistan and the US and wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.